Well, I want to welcome all of you, and I'll admit I was deeply bummed that we had to temporarily shift back to online for these final two Christmas messages. We had what we thought was a truly engaging experience planned for you and our guests, uh, but as we've learned, life gets a vote, and sometimes things just don't go as planned, and that's okay, because God is still large and in charge, and if we have to pivot and adapt, then that's exactly what we're going to do, because He is great. His love is great, and whatever we need to do to lean into that, well, that is what we're gonna do. Uh, there was a group of combined factors that led to our pivot, including key, temp- uh, key team members coming down with COVID or being directly exposed and needing to quarantine beyond Christmas. And there was just enough other factors for us to know this was the wisest choice uh, to take us online as we finish up 2020. And to set us up for where we're headed today, I wanna share with you a story. It begins with uh, 2015. I took an amazing team of young adults to serve in Honduras, and it included Included, uh, included in this group was this young lady right here, originally Jenny Yunker. Uh, shortly after returning from our trip, she got engaged to her then new boyfriend, Cody. It was a bit of a whirlwind romance, but if you know anything about my story, there wasn't a whole lot I could say about that. And then in March 2016, I had the joy of performing their wedding. I got my traditional first kiss selfie. And since a picture doesn't tell the whole story, uh, I've done a lot of weddings in my life. And I just want you to know this was the coldest wedding I've ever done. It was March. It was obviously outdoors with 40 mile an hour wind gust and a wind chill of 20 degrees. The bride and her bridesmaids were blue. Shortest wedding I've ever done. So basically an unforgettable start to this new marriage. And then two months later, they decided to be part of the team that helped us launch our new church, New Life Wichita. And we were so grateful. However, about that time, they also made another decision, a huge one, and without asking my advice. And had they asked my advice, I would have, would have done everything to dissuade them that this newly married couple just two months in, for them, this was not a wise idea. And to this day, I thank God that they didn't ask for my advice. Because Jenny had received a call from DCFS telling her that one of her first grade students and his two sisters were in foster care. And if someone didn't take them in by the next day, he and his two sisters were going to be split up into different homes. So Jenny called her husband of two months, I remind you, who was also in college at the same time. She told him about these kids, the horrible neglect and abuse, and that she wanted to do whatever it took to keep them together. And they might be in their home a couple of days, or it could be a couple of months that she just simply didn't know. And even though Cody had never even babysat or taken care of kids, they made the decision to do something. They made the call at 3.30 in the afternoon, and two hours later, three kids arrived. And this was their first day together with Cody and Jenny. And thus, this journey began. Uh, right, Right away, Cody and Jenny altered their entire lives for these kids. They went through the training to get their foster care license. Days turned into months. And within three months of their arrival, the kids began calling Cody and Jenny, dad and mom. And without a second thought, Cody and Jenny determined to keep them as long as possible. But the road was brutal at times because the biological parents, in spite of all the neglect and abuse, still had visitation rights. And there was meeting after meeting with caseworkers and with judges. But no matter what the challenges, Cody and Jenny determined, we're going to do what's best for these kids and we're going to give them a loving home for as long as as possible. And they began advocating and fighting for these kids who had never seen or experienced real love before. And the kids desperately didn't want to lose that. 
So for the next two years, Cody and Jenny faced incredible stress, anxiousness, anxiety, not knowing if the kids would be taken from them. And they'd fallen in love with these kids. They weathered countless visitations, uh, taking detailed notes, advocating before caseworkers and judges, and they continued to fight for these kids. And finally, the day came after more than two brutal, brutal years of standing in the gap. The courts finally terminated parental rights for the biological parents, as, uh, parents that had put them through hell. And for a brief moment, they were orphans until what happened next. Cody and Jenny adopted them also birthing a son of their own during this whole process. And today, and she gave me permission to share, she's pregnant with their fifth child. And so here they are today. It's just a beautiful family. And you can tell the stress they experienced because Cody lost all of his hair. I mean, two years and two months of extreme emotion and stress for this new life. And here's my question. Do you think it's possible that Cody and Jenny have greater capacity for love than God? I mean, they're wonderful people, but honestly, do you think it's possible that they have greater capacity for love than God? And I think academically, we'd say, well, no, God loves more or has greater capacity. In fact, if we're a Christian, we'd say that the love that they demonstrated towards Claire and Eli and Zoe is a reflection of God's love, the thumbprint of God on their souls, that it's an overflow of God's love, that God has given the potential to meet three children for the very first time and bring them into a home and embrace them as their own son and daughters. And God gave me the capacity the first time I met these kids to fall in love with them and to just love them. In fact, three months after Cody and Jenny took them in, the boy Eli uh, became my running partner for an entire 5K color run. And man, I'm telling you, this kid could run on. And I could just go on and on. There are details of the story that I don't have time or I can't tell you about. The hardship that they went through and some of the circumstances that they're still facing as the kids face the demons of their past. And, and I don't want to talk anybody out of foster care or adoption, not at all. The point is, if you knew the whole story, and I were to again ask you with all of the details of what they faced, is it possible that they have a greater capacity for love than God? And I think we'd say, no, I, I think that kind of love comes from God. And if it's in them, God's the, 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 God's the source and God loves more. So keeping that in mind, I want to take you to a passage of scripture, Galatians 4, where the Apostle Paul gives us his version of the Christmas story. Now, this was written by Paul around 52 AD. Pretty much all scholars agree that Paul wrote this and that Paul was executed by Nero, which means that this, this was written about 20 years after Jesus was crucified and about 50 years after the birth of Jesus. The other thing that makes this story interesting and compelling and gives it credibility is that the Apostle Paul lived during the time of the people who knew Jesus. It's likely that he had met Jesus' mother Mary and that he knew the Apostle John who took care of Mary in, in, uh, in her old age until she died. So he's heard all of this firsthand and he's looking back on the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and he gives us his version of the Christmas story. But maybe more importantly, he, he gives us what he sees as the significance of the Christmas story as it relates to you and to me. So let me jump into this passage. Here's the Apostle Paul speaking to a primarily Roman or Greek non-Jewish audience in the area of Galatia. But when the set time had fully come, and we talked about this last week, that for centuries and centuries and centuries, the Jews waited and waited and waited for a Messiah. But God's calendar had been marked 
the whole time. God sent his son born of a woman. And for the apostle Paul, who lived in the first century, who knew these people, to come to the conclusion that God actually had a son who had come into the world born of a woman, that's a big deal. And then he dips into the significance of the story, born under the law. Now, this is important. He says that Jesus was born under the law, which means that Jesus was born as a baby, accountable to the law of God, specifically to the Mosaic law, uh, the Big Ten and all the others, 413 in total, born accountable to the law to redeem those under the law. And, And right here in this word, those, is you and me. Because throughout Scripture, we're presented with this idea that God is our creator and that he has a law. In fact, that we're told, we're told in the very beginning uh, of man and womankind that, we're, that there was simply one rule, one law, and not shockingly, our first human ancestors broke it. And when it comes to the larger law of God, we've all broken it because we're not very good law keepers. And we know this is true because let's be honest, you don't even really keep your own laws very well, right? In other words, you determine something that's good for you, something that's right, so you establish a law for yourself. I mean, how many Januaries have come and gone where you decided to set up some laws for yourself? There were some dieting laws and some exercise laws, maybe even some financial laws. Nobody imposed those laws on you. You came up with them on your own, and then you broke your own law, right? I mean, some of you, you've broken parenting laws that you established for yourselves. Some of you have broken some dating or some marriage laws that you established for yourselves. Some of you have broken some honesty laws that you established for yourselves. So we are all law breakers. We were born under God's law that there's right and wrong. And most often we know what's right and what's wrong, and we will choose wrong. And for those of us who are Christians, we look at the scripture as the authority for our lives to help us understand right and wrong. Uh, For those of you who have not yet taken or never planned to take that step, regardless, there are laws that you've broken. And when you break those laws, here's what you know, and here's what you've experienced. You create a debt-debtor relationship. When we hurt someone, what do we say? I owe you. I owe you an apology. You've created a debt-debtor relationship. You create a debt-debtor relationship with the entity or the person who established the laws for you, whether you agree or disagree with the law. I mean, most of us would agree with all of those suggested speed limit signs that they put all over the roads, right? I mean, maybe you've missed the word suggested. I mean, clearly the officers who have pulled me over in the past hadn't been informed that those were suggested speed limits. See, all of us believe that there should be a speed limit, and yet we've all broken that law. And sometimes you look in the rearview mirror and you find somebody's come to your aid to remind you you've broken the law. And the interesting thing about that dynamic is that you agree with the law, and yet you broke it. And suddenly the government or the city or the county says, hey, you've broken the law, and now we have a debt-debtor relationship. You owe us. And that dynamic is true between husbands and wives and children and parents and employers and employees. And throughout our lives, we experience the sense in which we broke some law of right and wrong and relationship, and now we owe someone. And perhaps you feel like your parents owe you, or maybe you feel like your father owes you a childhood or an education or owes it to you to have been there when you were a child, and yet they, he sinned against you. He offended you. He broke the law of fathering, the law of parenting, 
Maybe it's flipped. Maybe you've got children that you're estranged from. And if they were telling the story, they'd say, hey, you owe me a childhood to be there for me. You ought to tuck me in bed at night and to tell me stories and to have been at my games or at my meets. You, you owe me because you sinned. You missed the mark with me. You didn't do your part in the relationship. And when that kind of law is broken, when a law is broken, there is immediately a debt-debtor relationship established. We've all experienced that sense of you owe me or I owe you in our human relationships. And the scripture teaches and Paul reaffirms that that same thing has happened between us and God, that we have all broken the law of God and we all have a debt-debtor relationship. But that Jesus came to redeem those who have broken the law. And that word redeemed means to buy back, to pay for, to trade. That Jesus came to buy back and pay for, to trade his life for ours who are under God's law. That when Jesus came and died on the cross, it was the payment for our sin, the law breaking that we had committed. And that by paying for our sin, the debt that we owed to God that we could never pay back was settled. And if that concept seems strange to you, it's actually not that hard to understand because, let's face it, you owe some people, don't you? You owe some people relationally that you can never pay back, right? You can't go back and unsay or untext or unmessage or unemail those words that you said or that you wrote. You can't go back and untell that lie. You can't go back and not say those hurtful words. You can't go back and be in that relationship where in truth, you were in the wrong. You can't go back to that first marriage or back to be the father or mother that you should have been to your kids. It's impossible. You just can't. You can't go back and be the teenager that your parents deserved. I mean, they were good parents, but you were just a rebel child or a prodigal. We all owe people things that we just simply can't ever pay back. And in a very similar way, Jesus and Paul and the writers of Scripture teach us that we have broken the law of God, but that there is no way for us to pay God back. We can't go back and undo what we've done or said or not done or said that we should have. And all the promises we might make, you know, from now on, I promise to. All the promises in the world leave us falling short because we've done damage in the past that we can't undo. Jesus and Paul and Peter and Matthew and John and all the writers of the New Testament repeat the same message, that there's a debt, but there's no way for us to pay God back. So when Jesus came into this world and died on the cross, it was to offer us what we could never accomplish on our, on our own, to redeem our debt-debtor relationship with God, to pay your debt, a debt we could never pay back on our own. Now, that's not news for most of us, even if you're not a Christian, but that news is only the beginning. Because all that terminology is judicial, it's legal, it's transactional. It leaves God as the judge and me as feeling like I got off the hook. But Paul says it's so much bigger than that. And to help us understand, Paul reaches into his own culture. He looks for a word picture, a metaphor that truly describes the significance of what God was offering when Jesus came into this world to ultimately redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption Son to sonship. In other words, God said, and Paul understood, I don't want to just forgive you. I want a relationship with you. Because see, you can forgive someone and never have a relationship with them, right? I mean, a judge can look at you over the bench and say, you know, you're guilty, but I'm going to give you another chance. You're free to go. And you go and, and you hope you never see this judge again. So you have no relationship with the judge, right? Paul says, uh, as amazing as forgiveness is, it's more than that. God wants a relationship with you. So Paul looks around his culture and says, the best way that I can describe it is that God wanted to adopt you into his family. 
Now, when we think adoption, our minds typically go to precious little babies or toddlers, and who wouldn't want to adopt a baby? But you need to know in the first century Roman world, no one adopted babies because babies often died. No one adopted toddlers because nobody knew how a toddler was going to turn out. In the Jewish world, world, there wasn't even a term for adoption. Jews didn't adopt at all. They had a whole other way of dealing with unwanted children. In the Roman world, people adopted adults, especially wealthy, powerful people. And here's why. Because the rich and powerful looked around at their own children and thought, there's no way I'm leaving my stuff to them. I mean, they're so spoiled. There's no way they can be trusted with my land and my titles and my wealth. If they had political influence, the parents looked at them and thought, they can't be trusted to take that on. So in the Roman world, you never adopted a baby and you almost never adopted a child. You adopted adults. This was very, very common. In fact, that's why, example, uh, for example, Julius Caesar, uh, when he was assassinated, they read his will, and in his will, he had adopted his grandnephew, Octavian, who was 19. So after Julius Caesar was assassinated, all of his titles and land and wealth transferred to Octavian. So a good day for Octavian. And Octavian went on to become Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor during the birth of Jesus. And Augustus, as he got older, had a daughter, but he couldn't leave everything to her. He had some grandchildren by her. So as they got older, he adopted his grandchildren just in case he wanted to leave them his titles and his wealth. Then he ended up adopting his wife's son from a previous marriage, a man named Tiberius. He was 40 when he was adopted by Caesar Augustus. And ultimately, Tiberius was the emperor when Jesus was crucified. And then Caesar Augustus, uh, when they read his will, because he was trying to control the future, he had actually adopted his wife so that she'd be co-regent with his son from the previous marriage. So they viewed adoption very different than us. So here's the takeaway for you uh, today. The takeaway is this. If you're a person of great wealth and means, and you have significant resources, but you don't trust your children, I'm up for adoption. Okay, just kidding, mostly. The point is, Context is king. And the context in which Paul wrote this means, and some of you really need to listen and hear what I'm about to say, as hard as it may be for you to accept, it means that God looked and looks at you as an adult with all your faults, all your failures, all your sin, knowing everything you have done and will do with all of your flaws and imperfections and even your rebellion, and God decided to adopt you. And if you believe that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was, that he did, in fact, predict and pull off his own death and resurrection on your behalf, that you had somehow broken God's law and that you are trusting Jesus as your redeemer, you're what the New Testament refers to as a believer, which means that you're not a slave and you're more than a servant. You have been adopted. Do you really get that? And, and, and if you're not a believer, the invitation is open to you to not simply be forgiven by God, not simply to have things made right with God, but to be adopted by God into the family of God. I'm telling you, it wasn't simply a legal transaction. It was relational. And the best way to describe it is that you have been adopted into the family of God. As Paul goes on to explain, because you are his sons, his children, his daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, this is so important 
Paul says that when you place your faith in the weight of your life in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God somehow inhabits your heart, that this is what connects you relationally to God. And I understand that this is a this difficult for us to understand. How does this all work? Just like it was for the early disciples. But he says, there's a spirit inside of you that calls out Abba, Father. Now, Abba was actually an Aramaic word that literally meant daddy. And when they wrote the New Testament in Greek and they got to this word Abba and uh, the ancient Koine or Attic Greek, there was no Greek equivalent. There's no Greek, uh, there's a Greek equivalent for father, but there's no Greek term for daddy. So they just left the Aramaic word and added the word father for those that wouldn't understand what Abba meant because it's a word or a title of extraordinary intimacy with no Greek equivalent. In fact, many of you know that Jesus used this word in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, remember the scene. It's dark. It's night. He's going to be betrayed and arrested and crucified, and he's on his knees, and he prays, My Father, Abba, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And he uses this word, Abba. He is the first person to ever use this term related to God. There is no record of this before Jesus. And in that intimate, vulnerable, terrifying moment, he says, Dad, Daddy, don't let this happen to me. Daddy, let this cup pass from me. Let me somehow be able to escape this. To this day, I'm deeply imprinted by a moment I experienced with one of my sons, my oldest son, who was almost 13 at the time. Uh, We were snow skiing a black diamond, and, and I witnessed him take a jump that went horribly wrong, in which he came down hard, upside down, snapping his head violently to one side, and then I watched as his lifeless body continued down the mountain. In seconds, I was able to get to him. He was bruised and bleeding and unconscious. He wasn't moving. I was cradling his head in my lap when after a few minutes, he finally started to come to. He was disoriented and in pain, and he was trying to open his eyes. And the first word that he called out with his closed eyes was daddy. And it was like this moment of pain and fear took him back to this primal place, a place of intimate childlike connection to their father using one of the first words that we learn as toddlers. And as the apostles heard Jesus, their savior, their Lord and leader, address God in this most intimate of terms, it had to be so uncomfortable, but it was so significant that they recorded it and they wrote it down. And the apostle Paul writing just 20 years after the crucifixion says to his non-Jewish audience and to us that, that we can relate to God, not simply as forgiver or master or judge who let us go free, but Father, and not just Father, but Abba Father, Daddy. Now, why is this important? Because if you're a Christian, this is the level of intimacy that you've been invited to with God as Father, Abba, Daddy. And as Paul thinks about Christmas, God's son, born of a woman, he realizes this is who Jesus came to introduce to us. So he concludes, so you are no longer a slave. It's one of the songs we sing at New Life, no longer slaves. In other words, you no longer relate to God through the law. You've been redeemed. You no longer relate to God as taskmaster or as judge. You're no longer slaves. And and any language or prayers or any attitude that you have towards God that reflects slavery or dictator or judge, he says you need to move past that Christmas is about moving past that. You've been adopted. And the message of Christmas is that God sent his son, not simply so you could be forgiven, but so that you could become his child, an adult child who's been forgiven and accepted regardless of what you've done in the past and the ways that you'll fall short in the future. And like your savior, you can call him Abba, Father. 
You see Claire, Eli, and Zoe, they were pursued by Cody and Jenny. There was great cost involved. And in a sense, they were purchased. They were redeemed. And if you knew the full story of these children, it is not an exaggeration to say that they were saved by the parents who adopted them. And I pray they never doubt the worth and the value that their adopted parents put on them when they adopted them, making them a permanent part of their family because their souls have incredible, incredible worth. And I don't know what you think you're worth to God or how you view God. Maybe you still pray as a slave or as a lawbreaker. Maybe you still pray to a judge or you still barter with God. You know, like, God, I did this. So I'm going to go to church three weekends in a row and I'm not going to cuss today. And I'm going to give some money to the church, right? If you're still bartering with God, you're still relating to God as a slave, as lawkeeper and lawbreaker, and you're still transactional. But Christmas is about God inviting you into something far better that that type of relationship is finished. You are my child and I am your Abba, your father, your daddy. You are worth more to me than every adopted child that's ever been adopted by a human, all put together because I adopted you, not as an innocent baby, but as a sinning teenager, college student, single, married or single adult. Christmas is about God sending his son so that we could become his children. Do you know what you're worth to God? You're worth Christmas and his offer of adoption by saying yes to Jesus. Paul says, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir, heirs of his kingdom, heirs of his of eternal life in this life and the next, that when this life is over, what comes next is wonderful beyond description. And that It's amazing. And it's amazing here, but I'm telling you, if it ever gets amazing here, it will wreck your life in every positive sense of the word. If it ever goes from intellectual to an emotional reality, it will change the way you pray. It will change the way you respond to temptation and the way you respond to your own failures when faced with temptation. It will change the way you view all the people around you as as well as the way you view yourself. And regardless of what other people have said about you or to you or the way people have maybe treated you, it will radically change your sense of worth because you know what you're worth. You're worth Christmas. You're with God sending his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that you could be adopted as children of almighty God. Many of you listening to me have said yes to that invitation and some of you have yet to say yes. Some of you said yes in the past, but it never really got from here to here. Some of you said yes, but you only got part way because you've continued to relate to God as the judge and the taskmaster. And one day you and the judge are okay, but the next, you know, I need to get home tonight and get on my knees and plead my case before the judge because I'm now in a debt debtor situation again. And if I die tonight, I'm not sure if God still accepts me. And hopefully I can at least get a few days behind me without sinning again and get some distance. And then maybe God will forget what I did and we'll be good again. And you know what that is? That's religion. If I do this, then God will do that. It's transactional. It's based on your good behavior. And that's not the offer of God. 
And it's time for you to say a new yes or a renewed yes, because somewhere along the way, maybe you drifted from the father-child relationship back to the lawgiver, lawkeeper relationship. And we're poor at keeping laws. And some of you, you've never said yes and agreed to the offer of adoption and the invitation is there. So maybe today for the first time, you've really understood what the invitation is, or you've been coming to church for a while or listening online or reading your Bible and it's just time. And there's no better season than now to say yes to that invitation to be adopted as God's children. So I want to end our time together by giving you a very specific opportunity to do that or reaffirm it. Paul writes in a later letter that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So I want to give you that opportunity by which you can say yes to God, to say, I believe that when Jesus died, it was to redeem me, to set things right, and so that God could adopt me. But God's not going to force you. It's an invitation that you have have the choice to reject or accept, to accept the offer by declaring your faith in the theological and historical reality of Jesus. And when you place your faith in Christ and placing your faith in what Christ did on your behalf, Jesus says when you do that, it's like you're born again, which is why Paul would say it's like you've been adopted into God's family. You've been born again. So whether you've never made that decision or over time you drifted back to the debt-debtor relationship and need to move back to the father-child relationship, I want to give you the opportunity now from wherever you're joining us from. And if you'd say, Chad, you know, I've got 25 questions and here's what I want to say to you. Over 30 years ago, I proposed to an intelligent, compassionate, beautiful woman, not because I knew all that the future held or that I didn't have a lot of questions or unknowns about the future. I proposed because in my gut, in my heart, to the level of my soul, I knew she's the one I want to spend and do the rest of my life with. So I took the step of proposing with a ring and then locked it in with a wedding. And then we learned and we grew and we discovered new things together along the way. And we're still learning and growing. And having unanswered questions and not knowing everything the future holds, well, for any amazing relationship, that's just normal. And honestly, it's part of what makes it exciting. You're not just beginning a relationship, but a journey, an adventure together. So today's your day. It's time to seal what's already in your heart, and we're going to do this together. If you've believed for decades, it will simply be a reaffirmation of what you've believed for years. For some, this may be the first time you've ever said words like this out loud, but I want to ask every one of you, wherever you're at, to just simply bow your heads and repeat and pray these words out loud with me. Heavenly Father, I believe you've invited me to consider you my Heavenly Father. I place my trust in what Christ did on the cross on my behalf so that you could be my father. I believe that when he died, he died for my sin. I've been purchased. I've been bought. I've been redeemed. I've been forgiven. And I've been adopted. So in this moment, I say yes to you, yes to Jesus, receive me into your family, become my heavenly father. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Father, thank you so much. I pray for everyone listening to my voice, especially for those that this has been a very challenging year. Thank you for the reminder that Christmas gives us peace that surpasses understanding in the midst of global and political and racial and financial uncertainties. I pray for myself and everyone listening to my voice that your spirit would drive that deeply and unmistakably into each of our hearts, that you would give us the peace. Give us peace as we're surrounded by so many things that would just rob us of our peace. I pray for all of us who have put our trust in you and in Jesus, whether it's brand new or whether it's been for decades, that you would help us to overcome our fears and insecurities and doubts that it's too good to be true and that you would truly help us to live and relate to everyone as your children whom you've adopted and promised to never leave and never forsake. That through us, people would experience you as we seek to reflect you and your love and your light in this world. Thank you for loving us and adopting us and walking with us no matter what we do or what we face. And thank you that someday for all of us that trust in you, that sorrow will cease and pain will cease as we transition from this life to something unimaginable. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I just want to say if you made a decision today or took a step for the first time, whether it's coming back after wandering for a while, please let us know. You can message me or message or call that person who's had a big influence on your spiritual journey, but we want to affirm you and walk with you. And for some of you, there's a next step you've never taken. And just like my desire to spend the rest of my life with my wife, Shauna, culminated in a public act that was a wedding, the next step for you is to explore baptism. It's kind of like putting the wedding ring of your faith on. And I'd love to talk with you about that if you've never made the choice to take that step. Uh, there's a link in the comments, and if you're a guest with us, please click that link. Fill out a short guest card. We'd just love uh, also to invite you to join our family page as well. There's a link as well for that. And please invite your friends and family to join us this coming Thursday at 7 p.m. online for our Christmas Eve service as we end 2020 on the most hopeful note possible, looking to a better 2021. We hope to see you then.